Well, I think the biggest thing is you've got to convince people that this is a metabolic disease. It's a mitochondrial metabolic disease. Okay, so that changes the whole ground, the whole playing field of how you're going to treat the disease. Because it's a metabolic disease, why you irradiate? Why? Because I've got to stop the tumor growth. Oh, but if I can stop it by taking away the fuels, then I don't need to do that. Now, of course, um, okay, so you're re- relabeling what the disease is. And by relabeling and, prevent, and providing the evidence that this is a different than what we thought, and that the gene mutations are really red herrings. Uh, they're epiphenomena. They're, they're very little related to what goes on. Well, that's a p- different, difficult pill to swallow. This is episode number 97 with Dr. Thomas Seafried. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Julie Fouché, family medicine resident and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring to you information and inspiration from experts and everyday individuals for how to use lifestyle to maximize health. Thank you so much for joining me. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Hello there and welcome back to Pursuing Health. This is definitely the most controversial episode of the podcast that I have brought to you to date, but I'm very excited to share this upcoming conversation with you. A little bit of background about Dr. Seafried. Thomas Seafried, PhD, is a biochemical geneticist, scientist, and professor at Boston College. For more than 25 years, he's taught and conducted research in the fields of neurochemistry, neurogenetics, and cancer. Through his extensive research, Thomas has found evidence that supports the hypothesis that cancer is a metabolic disease as opposed to the mainstream belief that it's genetic in origin. He believes that this fundamental misunderstanding has led to failed treatment and prevention strategies thus far. In his groundbreaking text, Cancer as a Metabolic Disease, Thomas explains the metabolic theory of cancer step-by-step from the most basic science experiments to clinical studies that support this unconventional view. Now, although it remains unconventional, this metabolic view of the origins of cancer is now shared by many top scientists around the world and is informing their research on metabolic therapies to prevent and treat cancer, including a ketogenic diet. I think it's important to share the current state of science with patients and with the general public, which is why I was so excited to sit down with Dr. Seafried for this episode. Science and our conventional dogmas are constantly being challenged, disproven, and changing. Just look at the paradigm shift that's taken place about fat and heart disease over the past several decades as one example. I highly encourage anyone with a conventional view of cancer to challenge themselves by reading Dr. Seafried's text before drawing any conclusions of your own. So Dr. Seafried and I sat down at the 2018 CrossFit Health Conference, which was held in Madison, Wisconsin, and there we discussed the metabolic theory of cancer, how he came to this understanding, and some of the research he's doing on metabolic therapies as well as some of the challenges that he and others in this research field are facing today. I really hope that you enjoy this episode, that it will make you think, and that it may challenge some of your current views. It certainly did for me. A few quick reminders before we get started. First, this episode is brought to you by CrossFit Beyond the Whiteboard, the best workout tracking in the biz and the one I've been using since 2009. You can learn more about it at beyondthewhiteboard.com. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, please head over to iTunes to subscribe and consider giving it a rating. It really does make a difference and gets this podcast out to more listeners. I'm always looking for inspiring stories to share. So if you or someone you know has used lifestyle to overcome a serious health challenge, please send your story to me at info at juliefouché.com and I'll select some to share here on future episodes. Finally, please remember that although I am now officially a doctor, this podcast is meant to share the experiences of individuals and does not provide medical advice. So with that, let's get started with episode number 97 of Pursuing Health featuring Dr. Thomas Seafried. So welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm very excited to be here with Professor Thomas Seafried, who just gave a incredible talk at our CrossFit Health Conference this week. Um, and so thank you for joining me here on the oh, podcast. Uh, thanks, Julie. It's nice to be here. So I thought that we could start with how you got involved with CrossFit because I think that's an interesting story in and of itself. Um, how did you end up here at the CrossFit Health Conference? Well, um, it was Greg Glassman reading my book with his father. And uh, he apparently felt that the argument that we were making or that I was making in the book was accurate. Having discussed it uh, with his father reading almost every page and then, um, and then I think uh, his father Jeff had a series of issues with some of the data that I presented in the book, and uh, wrote a long series of questions and concerns. Um, and then I brought this to my students, uh, my main associate Perna Mukherjee, and we discussed it at length. And then we formulated a um, rebuttal to Jeff's questions uh, of sufficient detail to appease his concerns. So I think, um, because I think Greg has a lot of respect for his father, um, having had a career in precision measurements. Um, and I, I think that it became clear that uh, what we were saying was accurate to the best of everyone's uh, ability to understand the information. And and it therefore contrasted significantly with the standards of what we think cancer is. Um, and I think that kind of uh, overlaps with Greg's philosophy of, you know, um, challenging uh, systems that um, perpetuate misinformation. And I think the cancer field is one of these. So he became very excited about this and... Uh, from what I understand, he ran around, gave everybody, bought a whole stack of my books and started giving them out to all these CrossFit people. He did people. because he gave me one. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. first time that I had Greg on the podcast, he gave me a copy of your book. Yeah. And he gave me a copy of uh, Travis Christofferson's book. Right. And I think he did that for several other people and really got them. Right. And I think that, um, so the, my, my affiliation with CrossFit came entirely from Greg and his father, Jeff. So, um, and it wasn't my reaching out to them. They were reaching out to me. Yeah. And, and I think that he's been a big proponent, uh, of our, of our, uh, position. Let's put it that way. And, uh, that's spreading the word to a lot of physicians that, you know, maybe, and you heard the, the talks that, that we had here. Um, uh, you know, Jason, um, 
Nation Fong's pay discussion was right on, spot on. They're all on. I mean, there's a serious problem here. And cancer is one of these. It's probably, I call it the big dog of medicine. I mean, it's, it's just slaughtering people. You know, type 2 diabetes is not good. It makes you sick and it gives you all these other things. But it doesn't kill you right out. And you don't have to be poisoned to, to, to think you're going to get a, 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 a remission or a healing from being poisoned. I mean, the whole thing is upside down. It's just crazy. It is crazy. And I want to talk a lot about uh, your work and some of the things you talked about yesterday. But just to lay the groundwork in the background for people, can you can you describe what your background was um, in research and how you ended up coming to these conclusions or yeah this, well it's a, it was kind of it's a very part. long and circuitous route um, having been trained in lipid biochemistry and genetics I got my degree in genetics um, from the University of Illinois and Illinois State University as well so you know I have two degrees in genetics one from Illinois State University and a PhD from in from the University of Illinois these are top top programs um, but at that time we were mostly working with um, uh, gangliosides. It's a it's a kind of a, a lipid molecule that accumulates in the brains of kids with Tay-Sachs disease. So we we were studying that. I was studying that. Got my PhD in gangliosides biochemistry, trying to look at um, animal models that had storage disease. And then I did postdoc at Yale University, and then was on the faculty at Yale in the in the department of neurology. And their their big thing there was epilepsy. And they were excited about genetics of epilepsy, so we started mapping genes for epilepsy. And um, because every, if you want to stay in the in that department, you better do something with epilepsy. So we also did epilepsy and gangliosides, epilepsy and genes, epilepsy and this and that. But it's interesting. I wrote a I wrote a proposal to the university at Yale um, back in the mid late 70s. I think it was late 79 or something, 78, 70, no 79 about using a ketogenic diet to work with some of the epileptic models. Oh, that's passe. Nobody does that anymore. It was like one of these. So, um, And what so, prompted you to do that just because you were looking at yeah, previous research? Yeah. And, I, yeah. I said, oh, this might be interesting. Yeah. Somebody said, no, no, it's all, it's all crap. It's hmm. not, not, not related. Um, only later on, when I was at Boston College, did I, um, one of my students went out to a meeting in, in, in Seattle uh, and uh, it was a, a meeting on, on uh, epilepsy basic mechanisms, and Jim Abrams uh, was there. Jim Abrams is a movie producer for Hollywood. He made the, the airplane movies and the naked gun movies, you know, those kinds of things. And, it, and uh, he, he was pushing keto because his son Charlie uh, was near death from epilepsy, and they started the Charlie Foundation. And early on, Meryl Streep, a friend of Jim's, did this first Do No Harm movie, which was about physicians that were pushing drugs onto onto this kid with epilepsy, which was actually Charlie, um, and how it was harming him and killing him. And then he found the ketogenic diet at Johns Hopkins, uh, and then they started uh, putting Charlie on this diet, and uh, he did remarkably well, and today he's a, he's a, he's a, a Graduated from college, he's doing really well. I think he may even be married now. But anyway, Jim was outraged about the system. Um, but one of my students heard all this and came back and told me that this, they're big on this ketogenic diet again. Uh, not again, but she never heard of it. I knew, I heard of it. Of course I knew what it was. I said, ah, Yale doesn't think anything about that. <laughs> so, um, But anyway, we started. She was so enthusiastic. A student of mine was so enthusiastic. So I said, all right, we'll try it. 
This is at Boston College. So it shows you it, enthusiasm can go a long way when well, you're a student. <laughs> yeah, well, she was very persuasive about let's look at it again and blah, blah, blah. But while I was at Yale, I was also doing uh, a lot of lipid. And we were, we were um, looking at tumors okay. for gangliosides anyway. So we, it was been changed. One of the people I was working with said, oh, these gangliosides are abnormal in tumors. So we made some models of, of brain cancer while I was at Yale and uh, started looking at gangliosides in the brain tumors. Um, but the work was mostly uh, related to um, the biochemical abnormalities in the tumors. But at the same time, we were studying uh, the genetics of epilepsy. So when I left Yale, I took a professorship at Boston College. Um, you know, we started to rebuild the whole program from Yale to BC. And uh, we built the animal models. Um, developing more animal models of cancer, but at the same time, of brain cancer. But at the same time, we were uh, investigating ketogenic, we started ketogenic diets, mapping genes, and then we morphed into, um, we, we, we morphed into using uh, the ketogenic diet for, for, for cancer. However, it started with um, first doing calorie restriction. Because Dr. Mukherjee joined my joined me in 1999, and she was a big calorie restriction guy, and we actually um, uh, it was very funny because um, this is, I put it I think it's in Travis's book as well because he asked me how I got into this you know what were we doing here and uh, you know how you well all of the th all of these things were go ongoing but they were not overlapping um, but uh, in our work on on gangliosides. Um, there was this drug, uh, NBDNJ, that uh, looked like it was uh, uh, in, in, impacting Tay-Sachs disease. And I was studying gangliosides, in Tay, which is the, the origin of what these lipid storage diseases are. So by chance, one of my students or myself or somebody, we decided to take this drug and give it to mice that had brain tumors just to see if we could change the pattern of gangliosides in the tumor. It was more like, because we had studied in gangliosides and tumor. Now this, and we were studying Tay-Sachs disease and gangliosides. So my colleague Fran Platt from Oxford University in England said, hey, we got this drug. It's really exciting. You know, so, uh, what, so I had the drug. They sent it to me. And I, for whatever reason, we... We just because in those days we had free animal costs. Now they cost us a fortune, so we were able to do things that would we, we just try it. I didn't write up a protocol, just do it, and all of a sudden the damn tumor shrunk on the uh, on the animals that were being treated by it with a gangliosyte synthesis inhibitor drug. So I called the company uh, that was making Fran, my colleague, said, "Hey, they found this this drug for actually could shrink tumors." So um, of course now the company Tay-Sachs disease. Is a, is is a, is an orphan disease. It's a, you know, one out of a hundred thousand people get this disease. It's a devastating disease to the kids. I mean, let's be honest. It's a, and we're still working on it, by the way. But, um, but of course the company. Oh wow, now because cancer is like massively bigger than Tay-Sachs disease. So they heard that I had found that this gangliosyte drug shrunk tumors. So they said to me. Um, how much money do you need? Just tell me the check and I'll write it out because we want you to explore this. So I said, ah, maybe 200000 Not a problem. Psh, give me the 200000 immediately. It was like like the next day comes into the university for my research. 
So um, we started then more more uh, detailed analysis of the drug, and sure enough, we give the mice the drug, and they would eat the food. Uh, and but I noticed we noticed their body weights were were smaller. Okay, so Perna was working. In fact, I hired Perna to help me with this doing this drug work because she had been doing a lot of animal work with calorie restriction and all this stuff. So she came in um, and said uh, the drug is has an anti-angiogenic effect, which is even more powerful, which is more exciting, shrinks blood vessels and all this. But we all noticed that the animals that were eating the drug, their body weights were getting lower. And um, so I said to Perna, and somebody said, well, you got to be really careful about some of these drugs because they induce an indirect calorie restriction. So I said, okay, well, let's set up a new experiment. We're going to have the animals eat the drug, animals that get no drug and their tumors grow like crazy, animals that get the drug and their tumors are much smaller, and then animals that um, don't get the drug but restricted food to equal the body weight of the drug group. Uh, and, and the results came out exactly the same. So the drug it was actually uh, had no effect on anything other than the fact that it made the mice eat less food. And uh, their body weight shrunk, and it was all an indirect calorie restriction mm. effect. The company probably wasn't too excited about that. They were livid. <laughs> so, so uh, when and they try to tell me that you, well, you can't when you write it up, you got to just focus on the change of the gangliosides in the tumor because that's what's going to be exciting. Yes, the drug did change gangliosides in the tumor, but that wasn't the therapeutic why it was working. It was working because it induced calorie restriction. And then we went on to show later on that calorie restriction lowers blood sugar and elevates ketones. And then we fell back on Warburg, who said, who found the same thing many, I said, what's going on here? Because calorie restriction lowers blood sugar. Warburg said sugar is driving the tumors and they can't, they can't, uh, they have a defect of respiration. So when we published the paper, they said, well, don't put the calorie, no, I said, I have to do it. I'm not going to, uh, this is the main part. They were upset about it. But of course they pulled the plug, uh, no more money. Um, because we actually had found a mechanism that wasn't uh, sexy, <laughs> basically. It wasn't going to make them any money. No, it was not going to make them any money when you can get the same effect by eating less food. You know, so so they dumped us on that. But um, And for, as far as, so you had then found out more about Warburg's work through this. Yeah, that, well, I didn't, at the time, We I didn't even, I heard of, everybody heard of Warburg. Warburg is just the name Warburg because he built the apparatus. For, uh, it's just a Warburg machine, the Warburg this and that. Um, and he had been a, 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 a major figure. But, you know, as a, as a geneticist and as a lipid biochemist um, in epilepsy and, gangliosides. Warburg's work never really came into our uh, research at all. But when we found out the... Uh, and, and Linda Nebling, uh, who I referenced her work, uh, she did the paper in 1995. She treated little kids with brain cancer based on Warburg's theory of lowering blood sugar and elevating ketones. Now, Warburg didn't talk too much about ketones, but he certainly talked about blood sugar. So we were seeing the same thing in these mice that were getting the so-called special drug. It was lowering blood sugar and elevating ketones. And I said, well, that's just what, ke that's what, the, uh, that's what we use ketogenic diets for, so uh, to lower blood sugar and elevate ketones and the kids to stop their seizures. I said, this drug is doing the same thing as stopping the growth of the tumor. So then Warburg said, well, it's all, it's all because they have damaged respiration. So we went back and looked at Warburg's hypothesis and theory very carefully, and we said, Warburg, this guy's probably right. And can you explain for people listening who aren't familiar what his 
what his theory is and how that differs from our yeah. current well, conventional War conception. Well, Warburg made the um, seminal discovery that all cancer cells um, produce large amounts of lactic acid. And uh, that's uh, confirmed uh, over and over again everywhere. And, and, the, and the PET scans, fluorodeoxyglucose PET scans, light up tumors because they're sucking down so much glucose. But they're also blowing out lactic acid. And um, Louis Pasteur... Uh, in the 1800s um, made the fundamental discovery that um, uh, oxygen in yeast cells, if yeasts are fermenting, they produce a lot of lactic acid. But as soon as oxygen comes in, the, they stop fermenting and they respire. They don't produce lactic acid anymore. And that's called the Pasteur effect. And Warburg had mentioned this Pasteur effect. And he, he argued that cancer cells have a defective Pasteur effect. Because even if you put oxygen into the environment, unlike the yeast, the cancer cell continues to make lactic acid, even though the oxygen is present. So clearly deviating from what Louis Pasteur had said. But, and he said, well, how do you explain that? Why would a cancer cell continue to ferment when oxygen is present? And he put, he put these cancer cells in 100% oxygen, and they still made lactic acid, which is in incredible. And he came to the major conclusion that their respiration is defective. And the reason why they have to ferment is because they can't respire. And he went through elegant experiments, one after another, looking at normal tissues, cancer tissues, all kinds of stuff. And he came to this conclusion that respiration is defective, and that's the reason why they ferment. So, and a lot of people today, even today, don't believe that. I think Warburg was wrong. Uh, only because if Warburg is right, almost everybody else is wrong. So they have to defend the status quo by saying Warburg is wrong without with minimal or, or misinformation about that and that's going on today from some of the top medical schools arguing that Warburg was wrong I wrote the book to prove that Warburg was in fact right so and I went through massive amounts of data from hundreds of experiments over decades of research from electron microscopy protein chemistry lipid chemistry everything we had done research in our lab to show that respiratory systems in mouse tumors are defective no question about it. And that's the reason they ferment, exactly supporting Warburg's theory. And yet people ignore all this. It's too, it's, it's too devastating to say that this guy, Warburg, who had won the Nobel Prize, he was kind of an arrogant German scientist. Uh, he was spared by Hitler because Hitler feared cancer. Warburg was the leading cancer guy in the world. So even though he was part Jew, we, Hitler said, I determine who is Jew and not Jew. Because he decided he, this guy could save his life, possibly. If Germany won the war, cancer probably would have been cured. Interesting. <laughs> that, <you know. laughs> so, um, of course, everything with Germany after the war was just discredited. Mm -hmm. uh, so but, is that why this theory kind of got pushed aside? Um, it, it got pushed aside for several reasons. Uh, number one, there had been always a debate about uh, the origin of the lactic acid. Uh, was it really damaged respiration? A lot of experiments that weren't done correctly said it wasn't. Other experiments that were done correctly said it was. But at the same time, Watson and Crick had discovered the structure of DNA, and then they found that there were DNA abnormalities in tumor cells, and this was the sexy and hottest thing in science in the, in the, in the, in the 20th century. Um, and everybody ran off chasing genes. And it stays that way, and today we're still suffering from that. Uh, uh, that that migration, that lemmings kind of group groupthink uh, migration, because the f the discovery was so profound that that um, so many things in our we we discover we discovered the mo the the molecular origin of the gene 
the gene is DNA, and the genes control everything, and genes are defective. DNA is defective in tumor. So, so maybe even just the timing of the, it was, the uh, discoveries uh, uh, that were being made at the time. Had and big what happened was everybody, all the biochemists, everybody ran after the genetic defects in cancer and felt that this was the origin of the disease. And it, it even goes back to early uh, 20th century um, when Bovary uh, uh, found abnormal chromosomes in cancers and said, oh, this is probably the origin. Even the pathologist said that it was all secondary downstream effects, that these chromosomes... And there had been many other papers in the literature saying it can't, it's got to be some mitochondrial thing. It's got, it can't be genetic, blah, blah. But, you know, everybody was swept away. And then they started giving Nobel Prizes out to people who were finding oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes and this kind of stuff. And it just, so everybody likes to go around the guy that thinks they know everything. And, and the whole field just morphed into this, um, this chasing genes thing. But... Um, and just for people listening, so I think you did a great job uh, in your talk to this weekend or this week of illustrating the difference in the kind of prevailing theory today that it's the DNA damage and the nucleus that's driving cancer versus the metabolic explanation where the, the this is all starting in the mitochondria and then that is later causing the nuclear damage as, that's a, right. as a result. That's right. So that's what, that's, what we, uh, that's what I did. I rearranged the players in the cancer field. And simply showed that all the gene mutations are coming from damage to the respiration, which produce reactive oxygen species, which are mutagenic. So basically, the mutations are in effect. They're not the cause. Um, so the whole thing, you know, where does cancer come from, becomes much more explainable. Uh, it comes from damaged respiration, exactly as Warburg said. The problem is Warburg didn't know about all of the other ways that cells could get energy without respiration. And we're doing that now. We're, sh we're filling in the Warburg, the missing parts of Warburg's central theory finding the missing link which would then should resolve all the controversy once that happens then we know exactly where cancer comes from how it comes and how we can treat it and and that's going to be a big thing the problem is as we've heard at this meeting uh revenue generation seems to be more important than patient health so if we put revenue generation as the prime goal of of this then then um and, and, and disease management and patient health as a secondary goal, uh, then we're never going to get to the to the promised land of 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 reducing cancer. If we so, this is the thing that physicians have to. They can't be just simply drug pushers for the pharmaceutical industry. And I think we heard that, and a lot of them allow themselves to become that. Not that they want to become that, but it's just what it's just what the, what system, the system does forces yeah. them to do that. So you and once you're in the system, like me, I'm not in the system, so I can say what the hell I want to say because they don't have I don't have a medical license to lose. But my friends who are in the system and they try to do what we think we should be doing are reprimanded, or could potentially lose their license for practicing medicine that is not sanctioned by the establishment. And if you're going to cure cancer, you've got to stop doing the nonsense that the establishment says you should do. Okay, so all this radiation and chemo and all this kind of stuff, you don't need to do a lot of that. You can manage these diseases without toxicity, cost-effective. But, you know, the system is so powerful. Um, it, it creates, for some physicians, you just have to ignore it. You just can't accept. The, the reality of the treatments that you're giving to your patients are actually counterproductive to the health and well-being. And you just have to say, I'm doing it because Big Brother told me to do it. 
but then there's if there's physicians that have a moral conscience, they have to be torn immensely within their soul to know that what they're actually doing and they know that what they're doing is not good and they know that there is another way they can treat their patients and they're not allowed to do that it has to be terribly frustrating for these poor people do you think that there are a lot of physicians who know that or do you think that this is just a lot of people don't see don't see the other solution I I think it's a combination of both but I think the majority never heard of what we're saying when you get into the practice of of the medicine the practice of your art you just have so many patients and time consumption and you're just doing all that you don't have time to sit down and read the literature to determine whether or not what you're doing however it becomes even more difficult because there are many physicians that have the opportunity to do some basic research as part of their internship or residency or whatever the hell they want to call it. It's always confusing to me, but uh, they have that opportunity. And that's where some of them actually say, hey, you know, this is not right. But then when they take it to the higher ups, they say, oh, Warburg was wrong. Um, and if you do that, you could potentially lose your grant and you could potentially, you know, have a lot of problems. So it's people don't want to do that. Or it's yeah, because you're bucking the major, the, the hot thing and in, in the so-called hot thing in cancer today is immunotherapies. So you see them advertised on TV in the evening, Keytruda, Opdivo. Now we even have CAR-T immunotherapies being advertised on TV, which is an abomination because it hasn't been proven. It kills as many people as it could help. So, but yet people don't hear that. Okay, they only hear what the establishment wants you to hear. And you heard that from, from Dr. Evans today. If you have anything that goes against the, bigger, the big brother, then you will not be heard. It's just that simple. So what is the common person supposed to know? They say, look, at, see, cancer is so wonderful. We get all these wonderful treatments until they're the ones that have to take the treatment. And then they're asking, how come it didn't work the way you told me it was? And I had to pay $400,000 for this. And you, did a, you also showed some data at the very beginning of your talk about the increasing um, death rates with cancer, yeah. despite you yeah. know, and, and as I said, why why nobody knows about this? Mm-hmm. I mean, this and this is common that. knowledge from the uh, 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 the what is it? The American Cancer Society logs this information every year, but nobody reads it. They all think cancer is we're managing cancer real well, but then you look around, and as I said in my book, all you have to do is read the obituary page in any newspaper. And you're going to see why are all these people dying from cancer? If we have the, a solution and it's working, why are the obituary pages full of people dying from cancer? It makes no sense. It's common sense it's not working. And you saw the death statistics, right? 1,600 people a day dying from cancer, right? And, and um, over 1,600 people. And it's getting worse every year. Now, if you do metabolic therapy the way we think we should do it, we would drop that death rate by... 50% in 10 years, which would be enormous, right? Think about it. 50% of lives saved that are being currently lost uh, because of, of a misunderstanding of the nature of the disease. So if you look at what, what's, what's pushing CAR-T, I mean, what's pushing these immunos, it's a gene, it's a based on the gene theory of cancer. So if the gene theory of cancer is wrong, like we showed in our nuclear transfer experiments, I put them all together, then the very therapies that they're telling us will work are not going to work. They do work for a few people, okay, just by, I don't know, maybe by chance or something. But but most people uh, don't respond the way they're supposed to respond. Um, 
and oftentimes uh, they they can get killed from this. It can kill them. No physician should ever administer a, a therapy to a patient where there's a remote chance that this pa- that this therapy could kill the patient or significantly harm them. But they do this, right? And that's cancer treatment, right? Yeah, but it, why? Right. So why are they doing this? Because they say we have to stop the growing the growing cells. We showed that the growing cells need two fuels, glucose and glutamine. If you take them away, the growing cells will die. That's that's so much easier. Can you talk more about that, about the glutamine and about filling in some of these gaps from Warburg's research and where where you're at in leading into this metabolic treatment? Well, the thing that we all know, the cancer cells are sucking down glucose, but there are some tumors that don't take in very much glucose and they grow like crazy. So therefore, Warburg must be wrong. But they're fermenting a different molecule. They're not using uh, sugar to make do lactic acid fermentation. They're using glutamine to do succinic acid fermentation. This is an amino acid. It's called amino acid fermentation. And it's been well known. A lot of microorganisms do this kind of stuff. But, but the cancer cell falls back and doing the same thing. So, so basically, they're not respiring. Can't get energy from respiration. That's why they live in hypoxic environments. They can live without oxygen. And this is what Warburg showed. You take the oxygen away, the cancer cells survive. Normal cells die. Nobody can live without oxygen. But cancer cells can. You can give cancer cells um, uh, cyanide. Cyanide kills people. <laughs> cancer cells is resistant to cyanide. Be fine. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so when you put that, when your cancer cell can live in cyanide, what are you talking about? You know, nobody can live in can get cancer because they don't respire; they ferment. And and ferment cyanide does attacks respiration, doesn't attack fermentation. So this is so how can so if Warburg is wrong. You know how come how come the cancer cell can live in cyanide? <laughs> so interesting. You know, so and people this, ignore all this, yeah, because it's too difficult to accept the fact that Warburg was right, and then you have to go back and say everything that I'm doing is wrong, and I can prove it because oh, I get all these dead people, and if they're not dead, they're seriously damaged from what I did to them. And now they have to be treated for, you know, a diabetes management, neuropsychiatric problems, hormonal imbalances, gut digestive issues. You can name it, go on, on and on. So we have a new branch of medicine called cancer survivor medicine. So you, now you have, oh, wow, we have another whole bunch of people t- remaining in the system that we can, you know, continue to treat um, w- with uh, anti-diabetic drugs and all the things that we heard that are all bullshit anyway. You know, so um, so the whole, and, and I agree, I think uh, CrossFit's idea that there's a mess is it, it, understated. It's it's a big mess. <laughs> <laughs> it is a big mess. And the, it, I think the more you learn about it, the bigger you realize it is. Yeah. Um, so for the... For the glutamine, is that something that is consistent across all types of cancer? or I, I think so. Um, I think to one degree or not all, because there are some, a very few that don't use, probably don't use any glutamine. It's all glucose dependent. So you take a, per, uh, a cancer that's completely glucose dependent, they should be really powerful by ketogenic. Ketogenic diets and, and lowering blood sugar will demolish these tumors. But then the ketogenic diet doesn't work against tumors that are heavily glutamine dependent. So, so there's where you got to target the glutamine. And if you target the glutamine and the glucose together, the, uh, we, don't, we don't think there's any tumor cell that can survive in the absence of these two fuels. Think those are the only two fuels out there that cancer cells can run on. Uh, they can run on other amino acids and other small carbs, but there's not enough. If, if you're gonna if you're gonna run a train or a thing, you got to have sufficient amount of of, of material. You got to sufficient sufficient fuel, and um, if you don't have, they can burn it up real quick, and then they run out of ga- They run out of fuel and they die. So you have to have 
what we call logistics. It's the supply. So there has to be a sufficient supply of the fermentable fuel to keep the beast going. Glucose and glutamine are the only two fuels that are present in massive quantities that would allow this. All the other fuels that could be used could be sucked down in about a day or two. Okay. So They're you, not living long. The, you can get, yeah, the cancer cell can ferment other amino acids, aspartate, any of these amino acids. But some of these amino acids to be fermented also have to use expend energy to get them into the fermentable state. So to get energy, you're spending energy. Glutamine requires no energy expenditure. It's a, it's a, a pure fuel, just like is glucose. So um, those two are pure fuels. They, do, they require very little other energy. They, they, are pay, they give you more ATP than they consume. Whereas other amino acid fermentations can take equal amounts for, for what they, so, so uh, and they're not present in sufficient quantity. Whereas glutamine is the most abundant amino acid in the body and it can be synthesized from glucose. So you, if you take away glucose, you can't synthesize glutamine. If you take away glutamine, you can't drive the tumor. If you take the two of them away, the tumor can't survive. It's just okay. that simple. And are there certain types of cancers that you know that are higher in their ability to use glutamine or yes. is that... Okay. Yes, there are. There are some cancers that um, don't show up on PET scan and they say, well, what's going on? Um, and they're t sucking down glutamine. So a lot of the immune cell system cancers are sucking glutamine down big time, like a lot of the leukemias, myeloids, these kinds of things. So ketogenic diets probably wouldn't work as well. For well, they, it works. Cancer. It works, but because it reduces inflammation, it does a lot of other things that provoke. But but I think to kill them off big time, you got to take you got to target both mo molecules. You, you, so there's a checkmate. You can't move into that spot. You can't move into this spot. You're dead. So uh, um, and who's doing that? No one. There's not a. We're the only group that's actually tried to do this. Uh, we did it on a brain cancer patient with good success. So, Can you talk about that, about your metabolic therapy and the press pulse? And Yeah, well, the press pulse was developed um, from the concept of paleobiology. So um, people who studied the history of the earth knew that in, uh, pa in the past um, there were these massive extinctions of organisms on the planet. Uh, and then they would evolve into a new group of organisms. So they were going back and saying, you know, what was responsible for these mass extinctions of organisms? And there were two unlikely events that coincided, basically uh, some sort of stress, uh, uh, like a climate change or something like this that was putting stress on the population. Individuals, some individuals in the population were dying because they couldn't handle the stress. Others were adapting to the stress and surviving, but under difficult situations. And then all of a sudden, like a series of volcanic explosion or a meteorite strike together with this climate press led to the complete extermination of all organisms. So you can see where we're going with this. So if we develop a therapy that puts Mac, presses the entire body where cancer cells are under greater stress than the normal cells uh, and then we bring in drugs to pulse and the pulsing drugs uh, we protect the whole body with ketones and uh, put them into a good physiological state uh, that and kills a lot of tumor cells but won't kill the glutamine ones and then we we pulse with other drugs that put even greater pressure on both glucose and glutamine while the body is under the press uh, this is the strategy so it's press pulse and what happens is the patients emerge from the therapy healthier than, than when they started. And oftentimes what we see is uh, these patients not only have cancer, they have all these other maladies. They have vitamin deficiencies. They have diabetes. They have all kinds of other things. All that stuff goes away along with the tumor. So you get not, more than you bargained for. Oh, you get a lot more than you bargained for. It's unbelievable. So they, And they don't have... Um, 
hair loss and bleeding and they don't have all this vomiting and all this kind of crap. So you can actually destroy the tumor gradually using press pulse therapeutic strategy. So the goal is to uh, uh, gradually degrade the tumor. As a matter of fact, because glutamine is such a powerful and important uh, metabolite for our body, um, you can't just take away glutamine and not expect to have other toxic events. So what we do is we are in the process of we'll hit them with the glutamine drug and immediately give them glutamine or even give them glutamine while the drug or even before we give the drug. Oh, interesting. So we're, so we're uh, because our immune system needs the glutamine. So if I kill a whole uh, cartload of tumor cells, uh, our immune system has to come in and pick up the corpses. And if our immune system is paralyzed and can't pick up the corpses, even though the immune system is not dead, they're just paralyzed from the taking their glutamine because they need glutamine to do their job. So you can't just uh, expect if you kill, then you get tumor lysis, you get, you get all kinds of other infections. You get So you have to do it strategically. So you want to kill a whole bunch of cells, and then you want to bring the, the same molecule that you just took back, give it back because the immune system needs it. They'll come in and pick up all the dead bodies, clear up the system, and then hit them again. So even though you give them back a little glutamine, you've already cut the tumor population in half. It's going to, and you've you got them under the press, so even if they have the glutamine, they're not going to be able to grow real fast. So only a few of them will grow. But then you're going to hit them again, and boom, another 25, 30% of them are gone. And then you get another 5% back and hit them again, boom, another 35. Eventually, they're gone, right? It's, and it's beautiful. And each, each, each uh, grade that you give, each position, the patients are getting healthier and healthier. They're getting healthier because their tumors are going away, and they're getting healthier because a lot of the other co-variables, co co-inflammation, co, co, uh, yeah, metabolic disease yeah, in general. Yeah, all these other diseases that they had were also being managed at the same time. So, so it's a win-win situation um, for the patient, but not for the traditional medicine, which is we should never be poisoning and irradiating people to make them healthy in the first place. And then we put the patients into hyperbaric oxygen chambers, which acts as a, as a, as a surrogate for radiation. It kills the tumor cell by, by oxidative stress. So, and we heat them up sometimes. We can heat up tissue, which kills more, puts more oxidative stress on the tumor cells. There's so many new ways that we can kill tumor cells. It becomes, you can get giddy <laughs> thinking about this yeah. because you say, oh, let me try that. Does that work with this? Yeah, it works even good. Oh, There's so many a, combinations. Yes, yeah. and I think if a physician understood this, their, their philosophy of treating patients would just be so exciting because you can have a, it would be almost like a CrossFit competition. You could say to somebody, do you know how easy I could kill the patient if you do this on this regimen instead of that? No, watch this. Boom. This is like super exciting, you know, and, and nobody's doing this because they think it's a genetic disease. So they build all these absurd things and it makes people sick and it kills them and it, and it doesn't help them. It costs the majority. a ton of money. It costs yeah. a ton of money. It's, it's just, it's, a, it's, it's incredible. So I think that the future of cancer is so bright, but at the same time, so dim. Uh, and it's, that's the tragedy. You know, we just have to get rid of this nonsense. And CrossFit may be one of the, the, the ways to do this. It's just amazing to say that, but uh, it's possible it could happen. Because it's, it's, if it can withstand the storm uh, that will come, and believe me, you saw how powerful the uh, the contrary views are. Um, but I, I think Greg and the power of the CrossFit community um, could make, or say they would need to be part of the part of the spearhead, the tip of the spear to 
to crack this uh, absurdity in cancer that we call standard of care. Right. And know. I think we're just starting to see it this, you know, this week is just the tip, the very tip of the iceberg of what, what CrossFit is doing. And, um, you know, it's similar. We've heard, you know, we heard Gary Taub speak this week as well about the paradigm shift in, in fat and calories in calories out in that theory. And he started writing about that 15 years ago. And now we're finally at a place where I think, but the general public still doesn't understand that. Yeah, there's still so many people who don't understand it, but at least I think the medical community yeah. is starting to wrap their heads around it and where, you know, nutrition recommendations are changing. Yes, it's, I it's agree. slow, much yeah. slower than we would all like. Yeah, but, yeah. And but I think we there. heard today about the, the nonsense of statin drugs, which, and don't forget, not long ago, it was just a couple of years ago, there was some guy, I can't remember his name, said that everybody who reaches 50 years old should start on statin drugs, whether they have any disease or not. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, I know in your lab, you focus mostly on mice, right? Mice models. Yeah. But, um, I know you work with physicians all over the world and different groups who are implementing or have implemented your yeah. press pulse therapy in patients. So can you just talk about where we're at in that stage? And then some of the challenges to being able to implement this on a larger scale with patients? Well, I think where, where we have less rigidity and I'm, I'm just saying less, not no. I think because everywhere we go, we're locked by this absurdity of the standard of care. Um, and therefore, we have to um, uh, modify it. We try, we can do modifications easier in some other clinics than we can in the, in the so-called westernized, you know, clinics um, where you don't have any. It's writ written in stone and granite and you can't change it. Uh, at least so far, we can't change it. But where we go to other places, we can uh, modify it. And when we modify it and bring in metabolic therapy, I think the results are more, uh, so much more positive and so much more r remarkable. Uh, when you're saying using metabolic therapy alone versus well, we can't, in conjunction with So far, we have not been able to use metabolic therapy alone in any clinic. We've always been locked, uh, uh, yoked by having to use some standard of care because I think everybody has become so um, brainwashed to think that standard of care or some aspect of standard of care is still good. In my view, it's, it's all bunk uh, because the purpose of standard of care is kill tumor cells. And if you can kill tumor cells without toxicity, why would you want to use anything that has toxicity associated with it? If you, but people, they can't accept it. They don't know about it. They don't understand it. It's not that complicated. I mean, if people, lay people, if lay people can understand it more conclusively than the professionals, what does that say? I mean, right? Professionals often overcomplicate things. Yeah, I think. Well, even if they're overcomplicated, they they can't. They're not allowed to. Okay, they're restricted in what they're capable of doing. So, and then when people argue, "Oh, this metabolic therapy, it hasn't been proven." Well, it's been proven at the at the basic science level, unquestionably. The basic science says that this is the way to do it. The preclinical systems say this is the way to do it. The only people who are not doing it is in, in the clinical systems because they say it hasn't been vetted by clinical trial. Okay, so when you do a clinical trial on metabolic therapy, it's very, very difficult to get anybody to do it. And if they do allow it to do it, it's got to be some stage four terminal cancer when the patient's already been beat to hell by, by drugs and by, by radiation and chemo. And then we're going to take them and then we're going to try to rally all their body to try to recover from all the damage that you've already done to it. Oh, and besides trying to manage this now outrageously growing cancer that was created by the very standards of care, right? So now you're expecting this metabolic therapy to correct everything. And, uh, tall order. Yeah, tall order. 
Um, but in, in fact, it can be done in some cases. But the bigger issue, as I mentioned, we can't do the critical control group. That's not allowed. It's taboo. And the t- critical control group is metabolic therapy without standard of care. What would happen if the metabolic therapy without standard of care is superior to both standard of care and the combination of metabolic therapy with standard of care? Metabolic therapy by itself uh, trumps out chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and immunotherapy. Beats them all, right? What would happen? Yeah, then we'd have a big problem for our current industry. I know exactly what's going to happen. These people are going to do a hell of a lot better. You saw Pablo Kelly. He's only one of many. You know, they're rejecting standard of care and they're surviving. Now, you don't go and do nothing. Uh, standard of care over eating big jelly donuts is better, okay? But if you don't eat the jelly donuts and you do metabolic therapy, you're going to trump standard of care. I, I have no doubt about it. I've seen it work. It's just unbelievable. So, uh, just got to get physicians that understand. Number one, understand. And number two, are allowed to practice what they should be doing. And if you don't understand it and you're not allowed to do it, you're not going to do it. Right. So it sounds like to date most of the most of the experience with this is just in individuals who say I don't want to do the standard yeah. of care and I want to try this instead and it's yeah. not necessarily part it can't be part of a research no. study per se because you're not allowed to forego no. the standard of care in research. Yeah, but when we do standard of care in brain cancer and we see that everybody who gets radiation dies um, over and over again, everything you see getting standard of care 98 percent of all the people are dead within six years all right so that's solid data nobody's going to argue with that because it's been repeated thousands and thousands of times so uh, and you come along and you get a guy who decides not to do this and he lives like much longer than you would expect well we can't we can't consider him at all because he's not part of a clinical trial but you have a few functional brain cells you can say what the hell how could that guy survive so long I want to do what he's doing, right? Okay, maybe it worked. Yeah, well, and what about this guy? He did the same thing he's doing well. What about that guy over there? Well, they can't consider those because they're not part of a clinical trial. But they're alive, and they have good quality of life. I want to do what they're doing. I don't give a shit about the clinical trial. You know, it's just common sense. And besides cancer, people want to live. I mean, this is not some incidental thing. Well, I'll put it off, you know. No, no, I, I want to do what you're doing so I can stay alive. And now, and then you go to your physician, you say, hey, I want to do, oh, that can't, doesn't work, it could harm you. And one of the things we don't know, I haven't seen any statistics yet on this, of the people who take standard of care and die, uh, it's not clear how many people are dying from the disease or from the treatments. That's always mystery, because we don't know, he was treated aggressively and, and he died. Well, how, how do we know that it was the, it was, because, because there are so many a radical remissions of cancer in people who don't take standard of care. And and uh, and, and Kelly Turner did this book uh, on radical remissions. And one of the things that she, there was a lot of things that were associated, but one of the things was radical change in diet was one of the, one of the uh, things that was most common in people who had radical cancer remission, a radical change in diet. Oh, what, does that say something? You know, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Right. So you, but you can't believe you can't, you're not as a physician in the system, you're not allowed to consider that because it hasn't been vetted. And those double blind crossovers that are required for standard of care to, or to put a new therapy in are designed to keep the status quo. They're, they're designed to only allow another drug 
to replace a drug that's already there, not in a completely different system, not a completely different paradigm of treating cancer, because there's no way to know this guy's getting, uh, he's not eating for three days, he's in a hyperbaric chamber, he's eating fat when he does eat fat, when he does eat, it's completely, you, you can't get a, you just have to say, based on the hard science, the preclinical studies, the, the case reports that are published, we should just do it. Let's just do the study. Let's just do it. Yeah. And, and have the co- appropriate control groups. We're going to have, uh, we, we can't, the only group we can't have is the no, nothing group. Okay. We, we can't just not treat people. So we have the standard of care, which we have massive evidence for. We have metabolic therapy combined with the standard of care. And then we have metabolic therapy by itself. So uh, uh, that, that would solve this problem. That would give us the, re- the data that would, that would tell us now who's going to pay for that right who's going to pay for that okay. and also the again being a vulnerable population people who are diagnosed with cancer and like you said very desperate to try anything that will work poses some challenges as well yeah but when you know when you say uh, look at all the things that nothing's worked yeah and they're not told that yeah okay they just said this is the new drug this is we got something new it could work you know and but all the other hundreds of drugs didn't work uh, almost nothing that's come out of the genomic sequencing has worked. The ma- the evidence that this is the treatment you're going to get is not going to work is overwhelming, right? When we have all this other stuff on metabolic therapy that shows that these people can do really well, why would you not want to take that? And in the Turkish group, they only take stage four cancers, so-called terminal cancers, and keeping these people alive for much, much longer at a higher quality of life, okay? And some people it may, may be even resolved. You can't know because it's just been recent. We haven't started this. You've got you to wait 10, 12 years you know, if the guy's alive and he's doing well and he has no adverse effects from, from the treatments and he's doing, then you get more and more of these people. They get on the web and say, hey, if you do this, you're going to survive. All of a sudden, the patient's going to come to the physician and say, I want, thank you, I want metabolic therapy. Well, we don't do that. Well, what the hell? I'm going to go somewhere where they do it. I'm going to go to CrossFit. They do it over there. <laughs> and I know you get emails all the time from people who have a cancer diagnosis or maybe there's people listening who just recently had a cancer diagnosis and they are hearing in this and they're wondering, where do I go from here? What do well, I do? Well, I send uh, I send them a kit uh, with information on on uh, glucose ketone index calculators because a person just like Jason Fung was telling us, the power is in your hand. You, if you if you know um, what you're, if you can get yourself into therapeutic ketosis, you you have you're you're on the right step. Okay, then once you're there, but then you kind of have the physician to uh, move you to the next. You can't just put your ass into a hyperbaric oxygen. Well, actually, that's not completely true. There, there, there are people who are renting them for their homes. Oh, really? Yeah, and they get in there and they t- tighten it up and they turn, or wow. have somebody in the family turn the <laughs> gas on. So, um, but uh, you like to be in a professional setting um, to do hyperbaric oxygen. And the problem is, is that they're not generally part of, tr- now here's another bizarre thing. If you get irradiated for cancer treatment uh, and your gut is all damaged and your body is all damaged, the insurance company will pay for you to have hyperbaric oxygen to repair the damage from the radiation therapy. But they will not allow to use hyperbaric oxygen as a therapy to kill the cancer. Hmm. Not approved yet. (laughs) Yeah, proof of what? I mean, what do you have to be approved for? You're going to take the same therapy. Right. Except if you do it before you take the radiation, you don't have to take the radiation. (laughs) Oh, the irony. I know. So physicians have to um, rally. They have to form a, a, a physician's organization that stands up to this absurdity. Uh, and I'm not saying the standard of care is absurd in all cases. Of course, there are some 
therapies that are that are that's the, is the fact the best. There is no other no other uh, option. But in the cancer, um, in this particular, type 2 diabetes and these kinds of things, well, I say more chronic disease management, this is where metabolic therapies will have the biggest impact. But you're standing, as I said in my, you got the 800-pound gorilla that sits in the room that is basically big pharma and the federal, U.S. federal government that's sleeping in bed with the gorilla. Uh, and that is a big obstacle to move because the, the, the firestorm that comes back to say why they're called the Merchants of Doubt, and th- there's a book out, Merchants of Doubt, the guys who, who claim that there's, climate change doesn't exist and all this kind of stuff, um, and, or, the, or tobacco doesn't harm you. You know, we find a study where this guy does, shows that tobacco never hurt this person or whatever, and it creates doubt on the part of the people to say, well, maybe they're not completely right. So you come in and you show some guy who does metabolic therapy and didn't respond, where thousand others did well maybe this this is the most people won't respond so you, you and this is going to be a a, a planned uh, undermining of the message and it's because there's organizations that have too much to lose if this now changes but you know as i said the bottom line is that people want to live uh they want to be treated without toxicity i can tell you now in cancer more people if you get cancer i don't know if they fear the disease more than the treatment because they feel now my my I'm going to have to lose my breasts, my hair's going to fall out, you know, my my face. I'm going to be. I mean, to to people who are interested in their their personal appearance, um, this is devastating. Yeah, and let alone how you feel. You're yeah, you're sick all nausea, the time. Feeling weak and sick. Yeah, you're yeah. you're fatigued, nausea. Your hair is falling. I mean, you're you're going to get your breasts removed, your colon cut out. I mean, this is like, but give me a break. I got to be on, you know. Uh, modium for the rest of my life. I got to carry a colostomy bag. Yeah, you know, it's like this. My whole life has changed. I'm going to lose my arm. I mean, you know, it's just like. <laughs> and you it's look not at a you, good, no, not a good it's, situation. It's devastating, completely devastating. I put a lot of that in my book in the first chapter about the the the, the what the what the, what it means to have cancer, and uh, all these different you know. Images, yeah, you know, you can look at it as a metabolic or as a mito- as a um, a genetic disorder, and look at a whole bunch of gene mutations, and nobody gets like freaked out looking at a whole bunch of little spots or graphs, right? But when you see some guy with a a, a, a woman with a mastectomy, that 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 uh, no hair and and all this kind of stuff, then you start to see the real impact of what of what the hell's going on. Yeah, here. and what it does to your family and your financial situation and all of those. Yeah, that's a, oh, that's ripples. terrible, and mm-hmm. and and you know the the um, with the new push on the immunotherapies, uh, it, it's funny the ones that work best and the people who respond best are the ones that get the highest fever, and this has been shown on a number of occasions. Yeah, and and William Colley did that years ago when he gave live bacteria to his cancer patients, and they got staph and strep, and of course that's going to cause a sepsis. It's like the response you get from sepsis. Your body goes into a massively high fevers, 103, 104, maybe even higher, right on the precipice of death. But if you can survive the fever, your cancer is completely destroyed. And he was able to cure a lot of people with can- with advanced cancer just by raising the body temperature with a bacterial infection. Then they changed it from live bacteria to heat bacteria kill bacteria and to give it to the patients. And of course, their body responded as if the bacteria were alive and they had the high fever and it worked just as well. So, but they got rid of that 
you know, because 5% of the people had fevers they couldn't control and died. But it's interesting that the immunotherapies that you give today for $350,000, you'll do best if you get a high fever. And the people who don't do, patients don't do as well don't get the high fever. So it's a Kali vaccine it's all over very again. Very interesting. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and Kali didn't charge anything for his vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> Free bacteria. Yeah. Um, okay. So maybe we'll start wrapping up, but can you give us just an overview of where this field of research is, the things that you're working on that maybe other like-minded researchers or, or people who are working on this metabolic um, working with this metabolic outlook on cancer around the country and around the world, where are we at and where do we have to go next? Well, I think the biggest thing is you've got to convince people that this is a metabolic disease. It's a mitochondrial metabolic disease. Okay, so that changes the whole ground, the whole playing field of how you're going to treat the disease. Because it's a metabolic disease, why are you irradiate? Why? Because i got to stop the tumor growth. Oh, but if I can stop it by taking away the fuels, then I don't need to do that. Now, of course, um, okay, so you're re- relabeling what the disease is. And by relabeling and prevent and providing the evidence that this is a different than what we thought, and that the gene mutations are really red herrings, uh, they're epiphenomena. They're, they're very little related to what goes on. Well, that's a p- different difficult pill to swallow. After spending hundreds of millions of dollars on the cancer genome project, you might as well flush it all down. And then to, to, to emphasize still how bad it is, uh, during Obama's administration, um, they had the, what they called the moonshot. $100 million given to cancer research. You remember the moonshot? Joe Biden was going to take charge of this. I don't know if he's still doing it. But the moonshot was to all in immunotherapies. Right. So I, I, as I said to people, take the money, put it into a into a, a, a rocket capsule and send it to the moon. <laughs> it's not going to help anybody on this planet. So the whole absurdity is that we keep throwing money at a problem of, for, for a disease that we, we, we never had. It's not a genetic disease. So we just perpetuate the 1600 people keep going up and up and up because we're treating it as if it were genetic. It's not a genetic disease. So the paradigm change has to be, it's not, number one, it's not a genetic disease. Number two, it's a mitochondrial metabolic disease. And the treatments that you use can be totally different than one was using right now. And, and if people want to live, and, if people want, and the other problem is we've separated the cancer into several different tribes. Breast cancer tribe is different from lung cancer tribe, different from brain cancer, colon cancer, all the different cancers. They all think everybody has a different, geez, a different disease. It's all the same. Once the tribes get together and become united, and march on Washington, just like the Million Man March and the, the Angry Women March and every of these kind of marches. You, you get everybody the cancer the cancer march, and believe me, it'll take it, it'll happen real quick. You know, it'll happen real quick. And they're going to all these politicians uh, that are all bought off by the pharmaceutical industry. They're going to have to say, "Hey, listen, my, pe- my they're going to burn my house down if I don't do something quick." Right, and everyone, yeah. I mean, everyone has someone in their life who's been affected by it. So yeah, well, I think what it, what it does then is you get. Uh, an outrage on the part of the, the, the survivors or the people that even have the disease. There's an outrage, uh, uh, an anger that, that's uh, un, unquenchable. Because if you look at your loved ones who've passed away and suffered as, as, as horrifically as they have, and then you realize they never needed to do that in the first place, and you're sitting there thinking, what the hell happened here? There has to be some outrage. And the outrage is going to motivate the population to do something. And if the population is complicit with suffering and being treated for a disease they don't have, then I, there's nothing anybody can do about that. Then we're just saying, okay, you just... It's just like a bunch of sheep. Just, just take it. You're gonna get. You're gonna have to just. Yeah, we're just gonna have to toughen up. We need to be poison irradiated, even though we know we don't have that kind of a disease. <laughs> <laughs> so we have an epidemic of cancer uh, all over the world. 
uh, perpetuated by a misunderstanding of what the nature of the disease is. So, and it's built an infrastructure of massive financial dominance to to, to keep the status quo on that disease, and uh, and the, pay, the people are being just fed misinformation on television, all this kind of stuff. So, you, you it's a big problem. It's really big, and if CrossFit can make a dent in this, then it's the, the, my hats off to them. <laughs> well, thank you. I was just going to say thank you for for shedding light on this and for writing your book and for um, you know, doing the, the due diligence to bring this information to more people because, you know, it's because of that, that CrossFit can use their platform to then try to spread it to more people and help, help to bring. Well, that's what I think the CrossFit is, um, is morphing into something different than what it might've been at the very beginning. You know, at first it was just keeping people, you know, physically fit. Yeah. Now it seems to be striking at the very heart of chronic diseases uh, with a philosophy that goes not only for the diet, for the exercise, but now it's even branching out into into recognizing alternative approaches that might even be better. And therefore, they could be a big voice in, in hitting far more people than, than, than a, a, a paper written in, in Science or Nature or Cell that only a handful of people on the planet can actually read. Right, so, right. and we're seeing this over and over again. We've talked about this week, the solutions coming from the bottom up rather than the top yeah. down and from the patients and the people right. You know, bringing those solutions and taking their health into their own hands. So it's it's an exciting time. I think it is. Definitely. It's, it's, there's light at the end of the tunnel. There is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there definitely is. All right. I want to finish with three okay. quick questions I ask okay. everyone on the podcast. So the first one is three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health. Okay. So um, I skip breakfast on probably four days a week. Okay. Usually like, weekdays or? Weekdays. Weekdays. Yeah. So I, I do that and then I, I work out four or five times a week at the gym because um, don't forget at Boston College you know our gym population is always people between the ages of 18 and 23 right <laughs> <laughs> they're always in perfect physical condition can't believe their body images at right. that age right um and the only people that change are the prof- the, that that remain the professors are always the same they're year after but the, year, the, after the, year. The, I, well they, they're the ones who get old the, the population always is young um, but, uh, yeah, so if, if you try to get a fast in as long as you can, if you can get an 18 hour fast four days a week, and then what I usually do is eat a handful of nuts, like walnuts, um, almonds and, and pecans and maybe a cashew or something, a f- filbert or whatever. And, and then, um, and then I don't eat until dinner, right? But then I do, I eat carbs, which I probably Everybody knows you, you can't. But I tell you, you know, it's just so good. It's <laughs> so delicious. It is so delicious. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, rice. I eat rice. I mean, I eat potatoes. Um, but we're trying to reduce it as uh, uh, more. My wife is more rigid about it than I am. But, um, no, I mean, I drink beer. I drink wine. I drink whiskey. It's not you like enjoy a, your, your life? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a, so... Um, you try to keep it in moderation as best you can, uh, but you also have exercise and fasting uh, as part of the, the routine. So if I were ever to get cancer, I would be doing a much more aggressive metabolic therapy than I presently do. 
there are always some zealots that want to abolish every kind of a, a risk factor in their life. They won't eat any anything that doesn't produce ketones, you know, or uh, exercising all the time. But I'm not that kind of a guy. You know, I don't do that stuff. I go of, to a bar and drink beer. Yeah, you I mean, take But not of, all the time. I like that approach. I mean, you take your weigh your risk and benefits. You look at where you are at this moment and what what makes mo- makes most sense for you and yeah. your lifestyle and it's true what what's right for you may be very different what than yeah. from what's right for someone else or someone who has cancer or who has and you're, you're absolutely right disease. and if you, and if i were to have cancer i would be more rigid in, in maintaining a, a metabolic management so i don't have to i'm not doing it now but i'm i mean i do enough i i do it but not to the extent you would do it if you were to try to kill tumor cells so um but yeah i mean we know i should be doing it more you know, but it's, I know what to do if I had to do it. Let's yeah. put it that way. I know where the life You're preservers are. Yeah, yes. I know where the life preservers are. Right. There you go. <laughs> well, that maybe answers my next question. My next one is what's one thing that you think would have a big impact on your health, but you have a hard time implementing it or you haven't. Well, I think getting rid it. of all carbs, I think not all, but I would say, you know, trying to. The starchy car- carbs. Yeah, the starchy carbs. And uh, it's not easy. You're living in a world of, you know, you go out to dinner with people, they put bread on the table. You can't take the waiter and beat him over the head and say, I don't want the bread. Right. <laughs> There's always right. somebody on the table who wants the bread. We're constantly so, <laughs> surrounded by it. So yes, it's, true. it's hard. That's, that's hard. You, you know, so uh, you do the best you can. And, uh, but you know what you need to do. If you're informed, at least you have the, the knowledge base to say, if I do this, I'm going to be better. Without any information, you don't know what to do and put yourself at more risk. Right. The worst situation is seeing or talking to patients who still have no understanding of what would be a healthy way for them to eat or a way for them to cure their diabetes right. if they wanted to. You yeah. know, it, at least if you present that information to people, then they can make an informed choice. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Last question is, what does a healthy life look like to you? Um. Well, I can't. I I can't say what I do is the healthiest, but I can say that it's not. It's not the worst. <laughs> 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 you know, I don't eat pizza every day. Yeah. In fact, after we heard about the pizza, I said, "God damn, I love pizza." You know, <laughs> who doesn't like pizza? There's a few people who don't right. like it, but I think there's few people who, if presented with it, would say, "Oh." What is that? I can't yeah, eat that. It's horrible. Yeah. You know, it's no pizza. Look, everybody loves pizza, right? Right. But um, eating a piece of pizza now puts you at risk for, it takes two two weeks to get rid of the d- damage that a pizza does. Right. Dude. <laughs> right. That's that what we learned this morning. Yeah, yeah. Takes that, that whole cheat night mentality a little bit. Makes you think about it a little bit more. But, you know, there's a certain thing for being uh, happy with your life and yes. um, not overdoing certain things. Yeah. But humans are uh, addictive uh a species we do a lot of things we overdo a lot of things we exceed in what we're supposed to do especially but, crossfit humans we y- have yes. a tendency to overdo i mean you guys are nuts with this stuff <laughs> but but it's it's it it it, it works right but uh the, the so-called completely moderate person is a rare indeed person you know a person who who like my wife in, in some ways she has two wines every night mm-hmm. never one never three <laughs> it's always two she's consistent consistent in this moderate moderate behavior where you know i might have three wines or no wines <laughs> you know? right you know? <laughs> the average is still the same yeah, yeah but it, it comes <laughs> yeah. in bursts you yeah. know rather than so um but i but i think you're you're, you're it, 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 you try to do the best you can and uh being aware of this you know and uh, and that's pretty much it so we'll just keep plowing ahead, find out how long we can survive on the planet, 
and then uh, and, and then <laughs> and then see, oh, you could have done this. You could have lived another ten years. I don't want to live another ten years. I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've seen enough. I've done enough. <laughs> Take me out of here. Get me out of there. Yeah. You know. But most people try to hang on as best they can. You know, if you're healthy and engaged, um, then life is not bad. But if you're depressed and miserable and in pain and uh, you know, a lot of people commit suicide. They can't handle it. They can't handle life. You know, for whatever reason, it's a lot of it is metabolic imbalances. They're just worldview is just so bleak and so morbid. And, and that shouldn't be, you know, if you're in, if you're in metabolic homeostasis, there is no reason to be uh, to have these th- these feelings that you need to commit suicide. And that's a big thing. You know, we have a lot of people committing suicide and you can see post-traumatic stress disorder and all this kind of stuff that all impacts you. Uh, we can understand that. But it also screwed up your metabolism, something fierce. You're on the wrong diets. You're on the wrong life. Your sleep cycles, everything is screwed up. So you, you, life is not, hap- not life is not fun. You know, we all go through uh, tragedies. You have deaths in the family, accidents. You know, you have all kinds of things, job loss, marriage dissolving. You have all these kinds of things. But if you're if you're met- metabolically balanced, a lot of times you can handle it. I mean, yeah, we've been we, we can do that. It's the people that are completely out of metabolic balance that that this becomes too crushing for them and they just can't handle it. And you have all these things. So maintaining the metabolic balance can allow you to survive life. <laughs> it's so true. And that's what we talk about with our CrossFit continuum, with our sickness, wellness, fitness continuum. And we teach at our seminars is that what we're doing is we're creating this buffer, right, against when yeah. life knocks you down, when you have a death, when you have a sickness, whatever it may be. You don't have to fall so far if you're in peak physical and uh, biochemical sort of. Yeah, condition. and it's still hard. I mean, if you're if you have kids and one of your kids gets sick, I mean, you're 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 everything in your life just changes. You know, you you're just and you get off your schedules and all kinds of things. You know, so yeah, there's a lot of things. But the other thing too, one last thing is. Um, you know, to do the kind of research that we do, is it's not easy to get funding for this. And we want to thank CrossFit for their support of this work and Travis Christofferson's foundation. So people who want to make contributions to this kind of work, you know, they can support Travis's uh, foundation. Travis's foundation. Yeah, it's called we- the Foundation of Metabolic Therapies. It used to be called Single Cause, Single Cure. Okay. But uh, because that's the where that's where the funding that's where the support comes from because the NIH is man they're all locked into the gene theory, so most of that money goes to fu- hunt down mutations, so uh, not all of it but a lot of it does. So, uh, but in any event, that's that's the way we keep going. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we'll link that up um, when the podcast comes out, so people can find that link if they're interested in contributing. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for joining me. Okay. And thank you for all the work you do. Well, thanks, Julie. Real, real nice. I hope it works. I hope it helps somebody. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I hope that it really made you think and challenged some of your conventional views about what is going on in the field of cancer. I would love to hear what you have to say about this episode. Please share your thoughts with me after listening on social media using hashtag pursuing health. To make sure you never miss an episode and to receive exclusive content from me, head to my website, juliefouché.com and subscribe to my email list. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and consider giving the podcast a five-star rating on iTunes. Also, don't forget to share your stories. If you or someone you know has used lifestyle to overcome a serious health challenge, please send me an email at info at juliefouché.com. I'll choose some of these inspiring stories to share here on future episodes. 
Don't forget you can train with me through Beyond the Whiteboard by visiting trainwithjuliefouché.com. Thank you again so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Pursuing Health. This episode is brought to you by a company that's made my life significantly easier, and that's Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online marketplace, and they're on a mission to make healthy living easy and affordable for everyone. It allows you to shop for thousands of the best-selling non-GMO foods and natural products, always at 25 to 50% below retail prices. But as a Pursuing Health listener, you'll receive an additional 25% off your first purchase, plus a free 30-day trial if you visit www.thrivemarket.com forward slash ph. My husband Danny and I have been ordering from Thrive Market for years, and it's helped us to maximize our efficiency with grocery shopping and meal prep in the midst of our busy schedules through medical training. Using Thrive Market, we can shop for all of our staple grocery items, things like nut butters, cooking oils, snacks, dressings, coffee and tea, even personal care products, eco-friendly cleaning supplies, and non-toxic beauty products. We know that they're coming from a curated list of products we can trust. Whether you're looking for paleo, vegan, ketogenic, gluten-free, non-GMO, sustainably farmed, fair trade certified, or any of 80 plus other types of products, you can easily find them by filtering on Thrive Market's platform. And they're all at prices 25 to 50% below retail. Even better, these items are shipped straight to your doorstep, so you never have to worry about the time or hassle of grocery shopping. Here's a few other reasons to love Thrive Market. First, they're the very first company in the country to go 100% zero waste. All of their packaging, boxes, and inserts are made from recycled paper and are recyclable themselves. They're the largest retailer in the country that sells exclusively non-GMO groceries, and more than 70% of the Thrive Market catalog cannot be found on Amazon. It provides greater access to high-quality products at prices comparable to conventional products in supermarkets. This helps to decrease the barriers to healthy living for everyone. We also have the opportunity to vote with our forks every single day to change our food environment in this country, and Thrive Market can help us do so by supporting companies that are also working towards this mission and producing high-quality, healthy, and sustainable foods. So that's why I love Thrive. Thrive's mission, again, is to make healthy living easy and approachable to everyone, and this aligns perfectly with my own personal mission and that of pursuing health. Because it's been such a lifesaver for me, I wanted to share the benefits of Thrive Market with all of you, and they've responded with an amazing offer. So once again, head to thrivemarket.com forward slash PH to receive 25% off your first purchase plus a free 30-day trial. Again, This is on top of their already 25 to 50% below retail prices. Why not try it out and do your grocery shopping from home this week? I hope you can take advantage of this offer and enjoy their service as much as I have. Once again, head to thrivemarket.com forward slash PH to learn more. No discount code necessary. Just shop around and the discount will be applied at checkout. This episode is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox delivers 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, and heritage-breed pork directly to your doorstep. Now, I think meat can have a place in a well-rounded diet, but there's a huge, huge difference when it comes to animals raised in feedlots that are fed primarily corn and soy and routinely given growth hormones and antibiotics, and those that are responsibly raised, fed their natural diet, and never given growth hormones or antibiotics. ButcherBox gives me some peace of mind, knowing that I can trust my meat is the highest quality out there and that it will taste amazing. 
They allow you to order curated or custom boxes of meat, and they always come with recipe ideas for you to explore. My husband, Danny, and I are super excited about firing up our backyard grill this summer to enjoy our butcher box selections with tons of vegetables from our local CSA. And you can join us. ButcherBox is extending an awesome offer to you for listening to Pursuing Health. Just head to butcherbox.com forward slash Julie for $20 off your order plus a free order of their delicious bacon. Again, that's butcherbox.com forward slash Julie. Hope you can check it out and that it makes your life a little bit easier just as it has done for us. 